Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up, psychotherapist Coleman Nocter on his new book and why we should all be aiming for a four to seven out of ten in life. Credited with getting David Beckham into yoga, Shona Virtue on why she favours flexibility and David Shortall on gardening for our health. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it's been good. It's kind of flown in really, hasn't it, with the bank holiday? It was busy. I was covering here in News Talk this week, but all good. And I haven't really spoken, I was thinking about on the show, about drinking alcohol since I pledged to do it less before Christmas. Then I had a really nice break over Christmas and decided alcohol wasn't really an issue for me. Now, to be fair, I hardly ever drink anyway, but I can't help listening to people because there's a lot more of them now talking openly about living life without it and the consistency that they get in their life and there's something about it that calls to me. It does feel tricky though and that's what I wanted to touch on today. Like We were away for my brother-in-law's 40th and I felt a kind of pressure to have a few. Not that anyone there put that on me, They didn't really care whether I did or not, but you do sort of feel like you're no fun if you don't. And you're a bit more subdued for sure, which I'd imagine you break through eventually. And I went out with some girls on Friday and whilst I was really looking forward to the company and hanging out with them, I was already dreading the feeling on Saturday pitch side at a camogie match and then trying to muster the energy to go back out with my husband on Saturday night and then pay for it all week. It's not really meant to be that way, is it? So I'm trying to find the happy medium, the holy grail. I'm good on rest, sleep, nutrition, movement, stress management. I am the health and wellness after all. So I'm trying to cut back on work and how I'm working. So it sort of feels like I'm done with cutbacks for now. But as I say, it still calls to me sometimes when it comes to consistency. And I'm excited to say I'm bringing Go With Your Gut to Cork. It's an event I held in Dublin earlier this year. So we are coming to Cork June 22nd. It's a Thursday evening. And if you want to hear about the importance of your microbiome and your gut health, which impacts your mood, your energy levels and your immunity... I'll be joined by pharmacist Uno Hagen. There'll be a cookery demonstration by Lily Higgins talking about food that nourishes your gut. And because I want to have this real holistic view of health, it's not just about food and the science, but it's also about stress management and movement. We'll have yoga and relaxation with Fiona Lockran. Tickets are only €25. They're available on Eventbrite and that includes a goodie bag, which is over €60. So search for Go With Your Gut on Eventbrite and I hope to see you in Cork soon. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, an estimated 380,000 people are living with COPD in Ireland, making exercise and physical activity a real challenge for some. Well, earlier on this year, garden designer and horticultural consultant David Shortall was speaking at the Living Your Best Life with COPD webinar organised by COPD Support Ireland to mark World Health Day. And he joins me in studio now. David, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. So how did you come to be involved in this webinar? The the reason for the, the webinar was to um, help people kind of live their best life with COPD. Uh, as you know, people with COPD would be... Um, Uh, They'd have trouble uh, breathing. Um, They would uh, have trouble with doing kind of physical exercise and may have kind of um, uh, related issues to COPD. So my role was to encourage people to get outside and get involved in nature and do some gardening and maybe help their physical and mental health. 
Because we do think of exercise as kind of walking, running, going to the gym, but it's very physical when you're out in the garden. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and just walking in and out of the garden. I mean, if you have one of those step uh, kind of counters on your phone, you'll you'll know that if you have to go out, kind of take things off the washing line, if you have to go out, kind of maybe just to go out with a cup of tea and sit down, you'd be surprised how many things you would, you know, how many steps you would get. And the other thing you probably notice is that the minute, well, certainly I know myself because I like being outside, um, you know, the minute you go outside, you feel different. You feel kind of energised. You feel kind of the sunshine in your face when we get it. Well, you're just part of nature, even to take in the bird song, watch a few uh, trees blowing in the breeze. I mean, look, I talk all the time about the importance of nature and the science behind why it's so good for us. I suppose the point that you were even making on the webinar with COPD is that there's a level for everybody when it comes to getting out into the garden? There is, there is. Um, so, um, you know, we're all very conscious of inviting biodiversity into our gardens and not killing insects and kind of not using all the chemicals and sprays that we used to use or all the kind of things now. So um, you can be excused from having a kind of a, a loose and kind of what we would have seen as untidy Let's call garden. it wild. Wild now, yeah, exactly. So um, so a wild garden is okay and it's okay to let the weeds come up because they're not always weeds, sometimes they're wildflowers. Uh, and it's okay to let your grass grow. Um, and that's an excuse not to have to do as much physical work. Um, some of the things I would do in that case um, would suggest to people is that um, with the lawn area, you'd probably... Uh, remember, I mean, there's very few houses now that are, are up for sale for months anymore. But when we were growing up, you'd know a house that was the people had moved out of because the grass was hadn't been cut during the summer. Um, so the difference between that and letting your grass grow in your garden, if you if you had one, would be if you cut around the edges and maybe a pathway through the middle and leave the rest of it. Well, that's less work and it looks like it's deliberate. So a picture frame of cut grass around the edges and letting the grass grow makes an area look better. And again, as you say, it's less physical and it's less to do. Um, and it looks kind of almost Instagram-like then, you know, that you've you've deliberately done it. And you'd be surprised what comes up in a lawn, like, you know, between, I mean, the daisies at the start. The daisies tend to be at a low level. Then you'll get the dandelions come up a little bit higher. You'll get the annual meadow grasses with their, their um, you know, their tassels of kind of uh, grasses. You'll get kind of uh, speedwell and thistles and kind of if you're doing something right after a couple of years you'll start to get pyramidal orchids and people kind of think of orchids as the things that are in your your garden but if you stop using chemicals and sprays and various different things on your lawn or feeds then the grass starts to give way to some of the wildflowers and the wildflowers start to kind of get a little bit more of a balance um, so grass likes nitrogen and people used to put lawn weed feed and moss killers and feeds on their lawns um, now, if you um, are not doing that and you're letting your grass grow, well, the grass doesn't have as much of a hold on the area and you start to get the, the wildflowers coming up among them and kind of they start to get a, a larger percentage of the garden. Kind of, kind of, you, yeah. you only have to look at it and just say, wow. <laughs> the communication between them or even yeah. if you watch a bird bird group, the, the murmuration and how they all fly but don't bang into each other and just that unspoken communication that, look, yes, it's just some something that can really strengthen our well-being. Um, and your message to people is to kind of just just start. Don't be overwhelmed by the patch of grass or think that you have to go 
from that to a big manicured area with a water feature in the corner because that's kind of what we're starting to see on TV with the with the garden makeovers. Yeah. It doesn't have to be about that, does it? No, it doesn't. And and I suppose when we when we look at TV gardens and things like that, you know, we're, we're our own worst enemies because we kind of tell people that everything is dead simple and then you kind of realise, God, it's not as simple as it was. Um, and you would see TV gardens where they do a big makeover a garden and you kind of think, geez, this person's not going to be able to keep this, you know, um, the way it is. Or they kind of sell the idea of, you know, um, an area of plants being low maintenance. And I know for a fact they're at, they aren't low maintenance. But one of the things we've been talking about there is, yeah, just not to be so um, precious about having everything perfect makes a huge difference. Um, and we have an excuse now because we know that the more wildflowers, the more growth we let happen, the more we let things explode into kind of like large sizes and shapes, the more we're going to get biodiversity in the garden. Um, but there are lots of things. I, I've, I've a stack of things. I, I, I don't particularly like the idea of the name Garden Hacks. Um, but that's the kind of the buzzword on the internet at the moment. But there are stacks of things that you can do to kind of um, make the garden tasks an awful lot easier. Um, nearly everything in your in your household uh, cupboards and in your your fridge and that kind of stuff can be used as various different things. So we're not using kind of chemicals and fungicides anymore. Um, milk and water mixed together can get rid of. Um, the things like um, powdery mildew and various different fungal diseases, um, bicarbonate of soda. You'd hear on the radio a lot of the time the the, the cleaning uh, yeah. Instagrammers and that kind of stuff. And that's bread soda, is it? Bread soda, bicarbonate yeah. soda. Yeah, exactly. Because they're essentially both acidics, and acidics kind of tend to be like they're what you call surfactants and things like that. They kind of just they they break um, substances they break down. Sub- substances down. Yeah. Um, if you're feeding the birds in your garden. Uh, everybody loves to feed the birds and then you notice you're getting kind of mice and rats and stuff like that. Now, I'm not into killing anything. I'm not too worried about seeing the odd rat. But some people would be a little bit worried that you're encouraging them. Well, put some chilli powder onto your your um, bird seed uh, because birds are not mammals and they don't have the same taste buds as us. So they don't get burnt by them. Whereas the, the, the rats and, the, and the, the mice will get burnt by them and they won't eat it. So they won't be attracted. If you want to water something in the ground, like get a sink a plastic garden pot into the ground and it gets down to the roots a little bit easier. Uh, Epsom salts. Uh, everybody always has that for baths and that kind of stuff. Epsom salts is uh, it's, it's essentially magnesium and magnesium is essential for plant growth. But the beauty of uh, that as well is magnesium can actually change the makeup of the soil to actually make, uh, say, nitrogen and phosphorus more available to plants. So by adding Epsom salts, in water to your plants, it's actually it's actually making other substances available. And iron is the same. So if you add iron to your, your ground, what it does is it changes the pH of the soil. So if you remember when you were a kid, you had two magnets and you push them one way and they stick together and you turn one of them the other way and they'd repel. Well, soil and nutrients are the same to each other. So um, if you add um, iron to your soil, what you'll do is you'll actually repel nutrients. Now, that sounds like a counter productive thing but if the nutrients are locked into the soil particles by doing that they're actually pushing them out of the soil particles and making them more available so things like camellias and rhododendrons and various different things that's what you're essentially doing when you add uh, iron to the soil it's not that they need iron you're changing the ph of the soil okay that's brilliant thing, that's so. great and is there do you have a, a website or anywhere where people can get more I, tips from you 
But I have a YouTube channel, so it's just David Shortall. Uh, look up me on, on YouTube as David Shortall, and I have some videos and various different things. Um, they're mostly stuff that I do for my students, but uh, I leave it open, to, uh, available to the public, and uh, there'll be kind of tours of my garden and the plants and then tours of the college and stuff like that on it. So Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating insight talking to you. Um, it's great to meet someone so passionate about what they do and that they have found that in life. And if people want to find out more information on COPD and the sports offered by COPD Support Ireland or to take a look back at that webinar featuring David, you can go to copd.ie. David Shortall, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Alive and kicking on News Talk. So my next guest, Shona Virtue, is an Australian badass. She is a personal trainer and yoga teacher with over 400,000 followers on Instagram and one of the most popular yoga channels in the UK on YouTube. Shona's method, developed during her decade of teaching, combines weighted resistance training and cardio with her lifelong passions, yoga and meditation, and she places just as much importance on rest and recovery as hours in the gym. And she joins me on the line now. Shona, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked. What has been your journey to fitness and making this your career? Oh, big question. Um, So honestly, I I would say, so I started as a gymnast, actually. And then from there, um, it was sort of a natural progression to move into actually yoga and meditation because I was sort of using those things to heal some of the injuries that I'd sustained through, through gymnastics. But what I found on that journey was that I became really, really flexible but I had stopped paying attention to the strength that I'd gained in gymnastics. And I realized that a lot of the injuries were actually coming up from weaknesses that I'd had. So I had to try and create a balance between the two. And this is what I found with most people is why I created the Virtue Method was because many people kind of go down the, the path of what they enjoy. So it's like, okay, we'll do loads of cardio if we love running, but we can't touch our toes. Or we'll kind of go really hard into yoga, but we'll lose strength. And that kind of starts to build up these imbalances and injuries. And so... That's that's where I'm at today. Yeah, and I, I, I've seen you talk about that, that there could be people that can lift loads of really heavy weights but wouldn't be able to run after a bus. And likewise, <laughs> then you'll have somebody that can run a marathon but won't have the necessary upper body strength to take them into older age. And, and these are exactly. the things that we need to be focusing on. This is what you're saying. Rather than the aesthetic, rather than just trying to build up these these muscles or, you know, slim down, we're thinking about the functioning of our body. Absolutely. And uh, it's hard because, you know, I get it. It's like we are motivated by aesthetics. We're visual because we're looking at our bodies, we're looking at other people's bodies. It drives attraction. So I get that. It's good to use it as kind of like kindling, like kind of like kindling in a fire. But actually what's going to sustain your health long term is like what I would call like a log, right? And that log, it can be represented by, you know, these things that you've just mentioned where it's like making sure we protect our bone mineral density so we don't suffer from osteoporosis or sarcopenia, which is muscle loss, because these are the things that have huge implications on our health um, further down the line. And not even that that late. Like these things can come on at like 30, by the way. Like a lot of people assume that they're like old people diseases, but they're actually things that can come up very, very quickly for people. And can we claw it back? Yeah, look, absolutely. Like, it's never too late. Like, really, if today, you know, if you go in, I mean, I have people reaching out to me all the time saying, oh, my God, I've just been given a diagnosis. I'm 35, um, that, you know, my bone mineral density is low and I'm, you know, early onset of uh, osteoporosis or osteopenia. And I'm like, we can sort this out. We, you know, you just have to start to implement weight training, 
various different kinds of exercise. Um, I think that the reason that I push so much of prevention is because it's definitely a lot easier. But even if you've been given a diagnosis, you can just you can get started right now. Like every passing moment is another chance to just turn it around. But you just have to make sure that it becomes consistent and sustainable. Well, the Virtue Method is now practiced in over 65 countries, which is incredible by thousands Mm -hmm. of people. And it got a real boost when David Beckham said he was one of your clients. When did that Mm -hmm. come about and does that still continue? Well, I mean, since COVID, I had to go back to Australia. I was living in Australia for a while, taking care of my mom and family. um, And so obviously that stopped. But uh, yeah, yeah. So around probably like 2008, 14, 15, I'd started working with him and working to just do what I do with everyone, actually, because at the end of the day, David Beckham has a body. We all have bodies and they all kind of have basic similar needs. We need strength. We need flexibility. We need fitness. And so it was just about implementing where there were gaps in those areas and, and you know, fixing them and integrating them. Yeah. And again, that's a really good message because that's a you know, an elite athlete, certainly mm-hmm. at one stage training at the top of his game. Um, and yet these are still things that he needs to think about, the functioning of his body. I think people think you reach a certain point and then, you know, that's it, you you're there. Stop. But it's a, it's a continual working, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's like the fun part. That's like this thing that we get to do and engage with and our bodies always changing and evolving and adapting. And it's a really beautiful experience. We just have to look at it in that way because I think sometimes... If our perspective on health and fitness is that it's a chore, it does make it a lot harder to integrate into your life. Whereas if you can look at it as this exciting endeavor where you get to kind of like control these variables and do all these fun things, it's, it's a much better, easier way to, to make sure you're doing fitness for life. I love uh, three tips that I read on your your website to get the most out of working out. One, never say earn your food. Two, never say detox. And three, never say stop being lazy. And these aren't really the messages we get around working out, are they? Not really. And I think, look, maybe they have worked for some and maybe they still work for some to, to a degree. But I think at some point that can start to lead to either like, you know, unhealthy patterns or, or dysfunctional behaviors, um, or it just makes us completely stop altogether because we just feel crap about the way that we're, we're um, training. So, yeah, I think it's really important. I mean, the detox one is there because it's just your body is like the most incredible detox. <laughs> um, and if it wasn't, then we would die. <laughs> so that thing, you know, when people are trying to sell detoxes and things like that, just really like grinds my gears. I really, really want to shut that down. So your weekly routine involves, you know, a real holistic view of health, food as nourishing, meditation. Obviously, you're in the gym, but you also do, which I I thought was interesting, a short sequence of yoga or gymnastics each night before bed. Tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about that. Yeah, so normally the the more dynamic stuff I, I reserve for the beginning of the day because that's the stuff that wakes you up. Honestly, if you were to just integrate like 10 minutes of dynamic mobility in the morning, I am a I am an avid coffee lover. Like I love my coffee, but that works better than coffee. Then I have my coffee after that. So, you know, just getting a little bit of dynamic stretching is really important. Now, before bed, there are different techniques that you can use, particularly relating to breathing and slowing everything down to stimulate what's called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is a fancy word for like your rest and digest mode of your nervous system. 
So just 10 minutes before bed, some deep breathing, calming stretches can actually help to improve the, the quality of your sleep. Um, and I, people would be thinking, can I do this now? Will this wake me up? But it's, it's the way you do it. It's the way you do it. Exactly. And so it's making sure, like one takeaway tip that you guys listening right now can do is that before your bed, you want to make sure that those exhalations that you're doing are longer than your inhalations. I mean, it's, it's so crazy to think that like we have the capacity in our hands right now in this moment to completely change like our mental and, and nervous system state just through the way that we're breathing. So if you were to take a three-second inhale, you want to try to aim for a six-second, maybe five-second if that feels too long, exhalation. And if you do three to five of those sorts of breaths, I guarantee you're just, it's going to, it'll change your life. You'll be like, oh my gosh, this is a game changer for sure. Yeah. And we spend our time saying, I, I don't have time, but who doesn't have time for three deep breaths? Exactly. Exactly. Don't underestimate the power of it is what I always say. You're taking place, you're taking part, I should say, in Wellfest next weekend. And everything we've spoken about that there, I mean, apart from the the breath work has been quite physical, but actually you're in the well mind tent, which I love. And you're talking about relationships and whether they're more important than exercise. Yes. So I actually went back to uni during COVID because I was like, I need to keep myself busy and it's a a degree that I've always been very passionate about which is a psychology degree and so this has been a really important part to to integrate into all of my teachings and so basically this talk um, is going to shine a light on the studies that are looking at how our relationships and the quality of our relationships actually impact our physiological health. And it's something that's just not talked about enough in mainstream health and fitness conversations. Um, For example, you've got the Harvard study of adult development, which is like one of the longest running studies, actually, longitudinal studies, which started in 1938. And it basically followed around 700 people, um, including their, their spouses and their children, to kind of determine what leads to a happy and healthy life. And what they found was, like one of the main findings, is that our social connections are are often predictors of physical health outcomes. Even when you're controlling for lifestyle factors like exercise, smoking, and alcohol consumption, like the quality of our relationships has this like kind of isolated profound effect on our physical outcomes, which I just think is kind of amazing and should be talked about more. Yeah, I do too. And I've been fascinated uh, listening to Elizabeth Day, the author, talk recently about her mm-hmm. book around friendship and friendships and how they change. And I think there's a lot of people who, as they get older, find it more difficult to make friends or, or post-COVID yeah. to be social. And, and it is to to our, our detriment. Absolutely. Absolutely. We feel actually like social exclusion in the same part of the, the brain that we experience physical pain. So we know that like this is a very important part of human survival is like social cohesion. And so I do think that we need to be taking it as seriously as we might be taking like, you know, getting a six pack or, or just like, you know, going for a run or things like that. It's like we should aim to pay, you know, equal parts attention to all of these areas, not just the kind of physical. And I think when we think of, of socialising, we think, you know, it's in a pub or a nightclub. And, and yes, that does take <laughs> place. But there are so many other ways to do it. Um, yes. I mean, only yesterday, I there was a I got my car valeted in one of the car parks recently. And 
the pay system wasn't working and he was really kind and you know he said look don't worry we'll keep trying I have your number you know you go on I, I didn't have cash and we, we'll definitely sort it out and I promised him that I would and you know it ended up going through the, the next week and I was very grateful and I went into the mm-hmm. same car park yesterday and I saw him setting up for the day and I just pulled down the, the window and I said I just wanted to say thank you again so much and you know he said oh no absolutely no problem and I drove away and the lift it gave me because it was just a small yeah. connection but it was so much kindness from him and so much gratitude back from me. It's even those small connections make such a big difference. Such a huge difference. Like that would have just given you like an endorphin rush. It would have it would have felt good. And that connection between, you know, a, a potential stranger is, is a really beautiful thing. I, th- I think that's awesome. I think also just coming back to your point about, you know, going to clubs and pubs and things like that. Of course, that's one way to think of a social um, outing, but it can be sometimes a bit hard to actually deeply connect. I think Doing things that are, I like to tell my clients to kind of combine their their social with their exercise endeavors. So going to something like Wellfest with a group of friends provides you with like, not just obviously like the events for the day, but it's also like things that you can talk about later, new challenges that you can kind of engage with, whether you go to someone's class and then you think, oh my gosh, you know what? I really didn't think I'd like that yoga class. Let's start a 30-day yoga challenge together and we'll go you know every day. And so you're combining health endeavours together with a social connection that is can really last, you know, for many, many years. Yeah, and there's so many things like that. Find what it is you're interested with and a, a friend who might be as well. And, and that's how to do it. I think it's a really good point. Well, if people want to find out more, they can go to wellfest.ie and Shona will be in the Wellmind tent on Sunday, the 7th of May from 3 to 3.45, having that discussion on whether relationships are more important than exercise. And you will find out more about Shona on our Instagram page, Shona underscore virtue. And I think you'll see that you would like to be her friend and hang out with her and you'll certainly have whatever (laughs) she's having. Shona virtue, thank you so much for coming on. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Dr. Coleman Nocter is a psychotherapist and lecturer. He's a weekly columnist with the Irish Examiner and author of parenting book Cop On. His latest book is described as a new essential self-help book entitled The Four to Seven Zone, an easy and effective way to live a balanced life and become your own therapist. Coleman, you're very welcome. Well, thanks very much for having me, Claire. I want to start nearly on the first page because you wrote a gorgeous dedication to your mother and everything that she had taught you in life. Yeah, my mother's kind of an exceptional individual. She was a nurse all her life and everyone who needed anything in the community, my mum was the one to, if someone was sick or needed to go to the shop or, you know, whatever the case be, she was always kind of look after the vulnerable. So she was kind of an inspiration to me all the way through. And she was a nurse as well, same as me. So, um, yeah, no, I, I oftentimes think we sometimes wait till someone's gone to give them a bit of a testimonial. So it was an idea to just say it to her while she's still here, I suppose. Yeah, and I, I thought it was lovely that you said that, that, you know, it wasn't through what she said. It was actually through modelling and what she did. That was the real inspiration. So I bet she was chuffed with that. So you started out as a nurse. Yeah, as a mental health nurse or a psychiatric nurse, I started in John O'Gods in 1995. Um, I was only 17 at the time, hadn't really a clue what I was wanted to do with my life. I knew I wasn't academic, so college wasn't for me, and I was too small to go to the guards and too scared to be a fireman, so nursing was the way I went. But uh, I loved it from day one, um, mental health nursing and that field I knew was for me. You know. And at one point then, did you 
decide to become a, a psychotherapist and the sort of focus on parenting and children that you've become known for? Yeah, well, I, I suppose from the point of view of, I went to Great Ormond Street in 2001 and I was introduced to psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Um, and it was just a, an eye-opener for me. I was really interested in how it worked. So when I came home then in 2003, I trained as a psychotherapist. Um, and kind of, I've always worked with young people um, and people have said, you know, is the four to seven zone from pages four to seven? No, it's not. It's a generic book for everybody. But um, yeah, this is a bit of a departure to me. But a lot of my teenage clients would have come back to me in their 20s and even into their 30s over the years. So by default, I became almost helping out with adult issues. And, um, and a lot of the columns I wrote for the examiner, people would say that applies to me as well, even though I'm not a young person or not a teenager. Um, so although the 47 was kind of originally designed to kind of that area, it, it applies to everyone at every age, you know. And as you say, this isn't a parenting book. It's for anybody feeling the struggle of modern day life. And in the book, you talk about feeling it too. everything you've got going on with your family life, your professional life, that no one's immune from from feeling this. Oh, no. And, and I, I think the book is designed to be quite forgiving. You know, it's about like life will bring us into the extremes. So we will overdo things and underdo things all the time. And that's not necessarily a problem. It's not staying in those zones for a sustained period of time. So inevitably, we will all struggle and we will all hit lows. And there might be periods of our life where we experience mental health problems. And the key is to try and get ourselves out of that spot and get back to the middle. Um, And and again, the, the technique is about almost holding a mirror up to ourselves and saying, where am I at? And how long have I been like this? And do I need to move back a little bit. And, and it's interesting because mental health fitness isn't about extremes. It's about almost like a race to the middle because the moderate is where you're safest from an emotional and psychological point of view. Well, we'll delve into the four to seven zone in a minute and, and, and what that really means. You, you've touched on it there, but I, I want to talk about how you've set out the book so that we can delve a little into each of the topics. And part one is a culture of anxiety. And I'll ask you the question you ask in the chapter. How did we, how did we get here? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember somebody asked me, like, what's wrong with the world today? Why are we all struggling so much? Like, what is that about? And it's easy to kind of point the finger at technology or the evolution of social media and all those things, which, of course, play a part in that. But I just think there's so much about our culture and society that's psychologically or mentally unhealthy. You know, the idea is everything has become extreme. And what we've done is we've kind of normalized excess. So, you know, binge watch, all you can eat, you know, there's a kind of a, even a phraseology that suggests that that's okay. And that's almost normal. And when you're driven to the extremes all the time, you're going to struggle, you're going to break. Um, and I think from the point of view of where our culture is at, it's just, it's, it's doing everything that's anti-regulation uh, in terms of, and regulating our mood and our expectation and all of those things are so important that it's really, really hard to do. Uh, It's almost like going on a diet in a sweet shop. It just makes it so much more challenging when there's so many things manipulating our desire. And what do you think about the the online world and and social media where we do celebrate the extreme? The the biggest people online are the ones with the biggest following. It's it's not in the middle and, and the mediocre. 
Yeah, and I think technology kind of it, it celebrates convenience, speed, um, and choice. And really, when it comes to the human subject, we're better off with almost less t- choice. Can be a tyranny. Like there's too many options. And from the point of view of you know where where popularity is is where is not where truth is. So what what technology has done is kind of said. You know what's most popular is what's most shared, but that's not necessarily what's most true or what's most well informed. Does that make sense? And so yeah. you, know, and and I think you know, technology has taken things like, like say for example, bullying or harassment or keeping up with the Joneses. That's not new. It's the quality or quantity with which we can do it now. It's the hyper comparative culture that has kind of taken it into a new realm altogether. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it really does. And when you think of that famous sitcom, Keeping Up Appearances, you know, you can kind of close the curtains of looking at two doors down who has the the better garden, the better car, whatever it is that you were looking to keep up with. But you can close your curtains and get back to your own home. Whereas now it's a constant curtain opening on your phone of, of what you're not doing or what you're missing. Yeah, and I think what, one of the things I talk about is that we've lost an idea of enough you know, and, and that thing, like enough is so important. Enough is what makes us or allows us to feel content. But if you, you know, if you have some, like say, for example, you're sitting home at night and you're thinking this is good and all the kids are in bed, no one needed calcium, this is a good evening. Then you go on your phone and you see your friends are on a golfing holiday in Marbella, you know. So all of a sudden, your enough is no longer enough. Do you know what I mean? So you could become kind of chasing rainbows a little bit around that. And Without a sense of enough, we're constantly chasing desire, you know, and again, that's a recipe for discontent because we will never reach it because there'll always be something other or better that's kind of come our way. And it's not about going looking into the neighbor's garden. It's almost like the neighbor's new fireplace will find its way into my sitting room, if that makes sense. (laughs) Absolutely. And it is that consumerist society, that more, more, more. So you move in in part two to the four to seven zone. So can you describe that concept to us? Yeah, well, it came from the idea of, you know, when when someone comes for therapy or something like that, you know, to try and get a sense of where their lives are at, you oftentimes ask people out of 10, you know, where's your sleep? Where's your appetite? Where's your social energy? You know, that sort of stuff. And what I was finding was, everyone I was meeting was rating everything in one, two, three, or eight, nine, ten. And what I realized was I never met the four to seven people. They're the people I didn't see. And there was a kind of a sense of, well, let's try and learn from the four to seven people. Maybe when we do things too much or too little, or when we obsess about things too much, or things take on too much meaning for us, or not enough meaning for us, that's where we kind of lose our balance and stability. And so... The idea of the four to seven was about trying to help people to move back into the middle. And whether that's, you know, I need to, my sleep is a one or two, I need to get that up to a four. And, you know, I'm not really socializing and I'm, you know, staying at home too much. Maybe I need to get my social life up a bit. And, you know, maybe my alcohol intake is up around eight, nine, ten. And I need to get that down a little bit. And it's trying to kind of almost have this kind of idea of a checklist from which we can benchmark how much is too much and how much is enough. Um, and it was kind of, you know, on the basis of, you know, I think when you're driving along and there's speed um, signs on the road, you don't really notice them as much as the ones that say, you know, you're doing 70 and a 60 and it kind of flashes back at you that you almost 
react to that and respond to that. So mm. having the kind of four to seven visual, people just said it was so helpful to me to think about where I'm at out of 10 and trying to get back to four to seven. And again, it's, it's, I've talked about it with you years ago. It's something that I've used in therapy for a long, long time. And people still come up to me years later and they'll see me on the street and go four to seven. You know, does that kind of, it has that recognizable lasting skill set that people really have felt it has benefited them to try and keep on top of things when I think there's so many other things distracting us into not thinking about our well-being, if that makes sense. And in that section of the book, Coleman, you really touch on a very holistic view of health. So you're looking at relationships, parenting, career, sleep, all these different facets that really help us to be able to gauge where we are on the scale. Yeah, I think there's so many dimensions to our lives. I mean, again, when people come with a mental health problem, it's very rarely one thing that's causing it. So it's usually accumulation of experiences or events. And therefore, when you're addressing it, it, there's a number of things that need to be done. So we break it down into your biology. So that's your sleep, your appetite, your exercise, all those things. And they're kind of pillars. That There are often signs that something might be wrong if your sleep is off. And it's very hard to do something about it while your sleep is off. So it tends to be something foundational. Then it's about how you think about things. So are you really negative? Are you overly naive? You know, where are you on that scale? And then it impacts on how you feel. So, you know, are you lonely? Are you, um, you know, feeling hopeless or a bit despairing? So it kind of breaks it down into things, the different dimensions of the human subject, but also the different dimensions of our lives. So our work, our relationships, what we do with our spare time, all of those things kind of, they both can be signs that there is a problem or they may be the cause of the problem. And it's just a way in which we can hold the mirror up and kind of do a check to see where things are at. Because oftentimes it's only when we sit down and go through it that we realize where those problems might be. And where do people start then? Because I think that can be overwhelming. We're, we're making it sound like it's, well, we're not making it sound like it's simple, but we're saying there's these pillars and, you know, you just have a look. But that can be really overwhelming if everything from relationships to how you feel to sleep to your, your nutrition is all off and at a low ebb. Where do you start? Because I think we're also sold this transformation idea that in three weeks you can, you know, become this new person. And it's quite a long and lengthy process and it's, it's not linear either. No, and the 47 rule is kind of, it's kind of against that new me idea. It's about consistency over intensity. You know, so it is about tiny changes making a big difference. And, and the idea around, say, for example, um, you know, there's a case of, a, of someone there who kind of goes to the doctor and finds his cholesterol levels are high. And what he does is he rushes out, buys a new tracksuit, gets his couch to 10K app, you know, tries to look for this kind of paleo diet where he's going to eat no carbs. And within two or three days, he's failed. So he gives up on it altogether. And, and that idea of overcorrection is a real issue because we're sold these ideas of, you know, six-pack abs in five weeks or whatever the case may be, or, you know, you can change this really quickly. They're very good for clickbait, but they're absolutely nothing re- relatable to reality because reality is about consistency, not intensity. It is about tiny changes, and it is about... Fulfillment takes time. Gratification is what we almost, we mix those two concepts up. Gratification is very quick and immediate, but it's short-lived and it's kind of a a sugar high, whereas fulfillment is a much more of an ongoing process. So where to start will be to make tiny changes and not about, you know, I'm going to, you know, lose 
three stone or I'm going to become Ireland's fittest family or anything like that. It's about readjusting and saying, if my physical health is two or three out of 10, how do I get that to a four or five? It's not about getting it to 10. It's never about getting it into the extremes or if my sleep is, you know, I'm oversleeping at the moment and I'm, you know, I'm in the bed till 12 o'clock in the day. How can I move that from eight out of 10 back to a six? And how would I set that? So it, it is about, it, but it is about, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You use it one spoon at a time. So it's not about doing everything together, but trying to say, right, I'm going to work on these quick wins and small wins. And it, it is a very practical guide. It's, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with maybe some of the mindfulness meditation, very passive ways in which we kind of cope with mental distress. This is much more active. It's quite prescriptive. And a lot of people are coming to me saying, just show me how to do this. What, what do I, where do I start? What do I, and the 47 zone gives you that kind of prescriptive idea of, well, maybe start here and just do this for a week and see how that goes and then move on to that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and, and meeting yourself where you're at, I, I can't help but picture that, that that guy example you gave who gives up on a Wednesday and watches that new tracksuit build up dust on a shelf. And it's just another reason to put yourself down and say you've failed and it's just further compacting. Um, and, and it's about kind of building up that, that confidence, that awareness in yourself. And your part three is about becoming your own therapist. So are you trying to do yourself and others out of a job? Or is this before we get to you that we, we come to somebody like you with more of an awareness of where we're at? It's a bit of both, Claire. I mean, over the, the pandemic, like I was getting, like before pandemic, you might get five or six emails a week of people looking for support. Since kind of April 2020, I've been getting north of 20 or 30 every week. So there's a, such a volume of people looking for help and support at the moment. I'll never be able to get to them. It's not going to be possible. So the idea was, I was trying to collate some of the advice I was giving most people and putting it in somewhere where, where a, kind of a depository where people could access that for themselves. And a lot of the advice I've been giving over the last few years is about regulation. It's about, and it's exactly what you said, meeting people where they're at, not where they want to be. You know, so the idea is we paused our lives for two years. That's going to take its toll. And so a lot of us will be struggling and that's understandable. But how do we kind of reset or recalibrate things so that we reassess what's important to us and how do we kind of re set the dial a little bit because, you know, we all said, oh, our lives are so busy, we could do with kind of a bit of downtime. But two years of downtime was far too much. You know, so we say that, you know, sedentary life is bad, but being an elite obsessive athlete is not good either. So it's all about trying to find that middle. Um, and for me, the, the advice around becoming your own therapist is about, you know, having that, again, it's that mirror to hold up and say, where am I at? What, what are the things that... Are, are kind of because it's never it, life will, will throw you into one two three eight nine ten. That's just life. It will happen. The key is not to stay there. So it's about reminding ourselves of where those where the, where things might be going a little off track and getting it back on before we're staying in there. As I said to you, the idea is not it's not often that it's not often the acuteness of our sadness. It's how long we're sad for. You know, but what makes you give up the Climbing the mountain is often does not the steepness of it, but the, the kind of stone in your shoe idea that's just getting to you. you know, so the idea is take a moment, look at where I'm at. How can I just one or two small things and see if those small changes can make some bit of a difference and make this, again, you know, more reasonable or more realistic. And it is about realistic. It's a game of inches, not yards, if that makes sense. And obviously there's a lot to be said for sitting with a professional who has years of, of training and talking in a safe space and having a number of sessions to to build up and, and be 
correctly minded in that and, you know, signposted. But people would be surprised to hear that ultimately it will come down to, to them. We had a nutritionist here in studio a couple of weeks back and she said people arrive and say, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And that's not really what the process is. So that's what you're essentially doing in the four to seven is putting the power there. You also touch on values, which is something um, I don't think we talk enough about. It's so important for us to figure out what our values are. But then that can be quite overwhelming as well. Do you have some advice there? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, we kind of get confused about rules and values. The values are almost more incentivizing than rules. So a value is what's important to me. And I just think the way in which the world is at the moment, our values are being so manipulated. You know, it's people telling us, you shouldn't want that. You should want this instead. And the idea of, you know, when something is is being influenced from the outside, whether it's, you know, your Instagram feed or whether it's your neighbors or whether, you know, all of these things, people say, this is what you should want. We very rarely take a seat back and say, well, what do I actually want? Like, what is important to me? What what do I need to do to make my own value system and not have it decided by other people? And for me, a lot of that is taking power back. It is saying, you know, why am I investing so much time in this? When in actual fact, it doesn't really mean that much to me. It's not that important. And one of the things I think people do probably unawares is they sweat the small stuff, you know, and it really is about sitting back. And, and you know, they become your own therapist. I mean, a lot of people who make changes in their lives don't make it in the therapy room. They make it in the in between the sessions when they go out. You know, much of our problems are oftentimes life problems, you know, so they're things that we need to look at, readjust and change. Um, and so the four to seven is about kind of giving you a prescriptive idea to look at what those changes might be and give you some advice around how to start to make them without having to be, you know, exceptional or having to be, and actually struggling and being average is where most of us are. You know, by definition, you know, if you've 10 people in a room, you know, two, one might be exceptional and one might really struggle, but the other eight are going to be average. And that's where most of us are. And it is about accepting that a little bit and our values being actually, when I hear average, I should feel relieved not disappointed. And that's about shifting your value system. That's about changing the lens with which you see the world. Um, and hopefully the book helps us to kind of, again, just concentrate on the stuff that matter and not to get caught up in the stuff that doesn't. Well, it is a brilliant book. It's called The Four to Seven Zone, An Easy and Effective Way to Live a Balanced Life. Dr. Coleman Nocter, thank you so much for coming on. Pleasure, thank you. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to all of my guests, to my producer Eva Breen and to Hugo De Silva-Scott, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking on News Talk.